Tonight, as promised, and I know you were just waiting, was we were going to talk a little bit on connecting chapter 16 of Revelation, and really not just 16, but even 17 and 18, to the fall of Jerusalem. And I'm not going to go into great, great detail of it, but I'm going to hopefully give you an understanding of why I don't accept that this is just um, something that was fulfilled in 70 AD. Um, Josephus is going to record the fall of Jerusalem in great detail. And we talked about hail coming down, and I mentioned that he records hailstones, uh, not hailstones, but great white stones that weighed 100 pounds each that were literally catapulted at the city. And so he sees, well, not he necessarily, but people who have taken this approach have said that that is the fulfillment of the hailstones in this, this last plague. If Revelation, however, is describing the divorce of Israel, which is ultimately what typically these people will say, the preterists, that Revelation was fulfilled in 70 AD. God is pretty much done with the Jew because they have rejected him. And therefore, this message is, you know, that was the destruction of Israel and the church has replaced Israel. Well, Revelation is describing this divorce of Israel and that God is getting rid of it because in the Old Testament we see that there was a punishment of the prostitute. And if you recall in Leviticus it says that a prostitute who was unfaithful or you know a woman that was unfaithful and became a prostitute what was the punishment? Stoning. And so that the hailstones or these great white stones in Josephus's case in 70 AD was a stoning of Israel. And so that's the kind of mindset that they have. So the fall of Jerusalem would therefore be kind of a battle of Armageddon in itself where the woman, which would be Jerusalem here, is going to be destroyed. And then the old earthly Jerusalem was to be ultimately uh, destroyed as well. The new Jerusalem that's going to be coming up in chapters 21, when we see it coming out of heaven, that that is going to fill the void of the earthly Jerusalem being destroyed. So, in other words, Judaism... And the rejection of the Messiah is what leaves Jerusalem desolate. Because Jesus said there in Matthew chapter 23, verse 38, that I leave you this house desolate. Now I understand that reasoning because Jesus does say those things and we do know Israel certainly did become apostate. But the difference is, is we always see a remnant. A remnant that God has preserved. Even in the days of Elijah, you might remember, and this is quoted in the New Testament as well, in Romans, where it says, Lord, they've killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I'm the only one left. And what was God's response? 
I still have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There has always been a remnant, and that's one of the reasons why I want to go through the Jewish history maybe after we finish Revelation. Because you can trace God's faithfulness to the covenant from Abraham all the way to the present. My presentation is going to go primarily to the Holocaust. But I think it's important for us to see that. Because there's another scripture verse that says this, that as long as heaven and earth remain, unless you can you know, make a covenant with the day and the night so that day and night don't come at their appointed times, my covenant with Israel will stand. And so if scripture is saying that God's covenant with Israel will stand as long as there's day and night, and unless you can break that covenant with the day and night, God's covenant won't be broke. So for us to say the church has replaced Israel, that God is done with the prostitute, stoned the prostitute, is absolutely unbiblical. No question about it. So the preterist view, typically most preterists are going to be thinking along these lines, though, that God is done with uh, the Jews. So the rejection of the Messiah, as I said, leaves Jerusalem desolate and Christians now take over. That's kind of the, the idea that they flourish. Now, what we've been discussing so far, we saw in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, that the siege of Jerusalem by the Gentiles was to last 42 months or three and a half years says Jerusalem was trampled on by the Gentiles. Now, I don't understand necessarily this three and a half years. I think it's going to be something that is going to be literal in the future. But I also think there's a, a, a foreshadowing of that in the sense that we as Gentiles have truly trampled upon the gospel and the covenant that God has given them. We have talked and will talk more in the future. Why would a Jew even want to hear the gospel when we have trampled the word of God, the law? Oh, Jesus, the Messiah, he got rid of the law. He got rid of Torah. Well, that sounds like Satanism to a Jew. Because we're saying, you're, his covenant, that doesn't stand either. No, you're, he's done with you. That doesn't sound like the Messiah they're waiting for. So really, in essence, we have been, you might say, figuratively trampling on the message for the last 2,000 years. Again, I don't think that is a fulfillment of this three and a half days that we see in Revelation 11. I don't think that has happened yet, but I think it is coming. Well, the Roman siege of Jerusalem began in the spring of A.D. 67. It ended in September of A.D. 70. And preterists are quick to point out, if you add that up, it is 42 months. Therefore, they are going to say that 
the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans with Titus was three and a half years, just like Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 said. Also, in 11 verse 2, it says the temple is the focus of the trampling. What does Titus do? He comes in, he destroys the temple, he burns the temple, he sets his throne up before he burns it in the temple, desecrating it, setting up an abomination that causes desolation. So, you can see how that does seem to fit. During John's day, the John that we're reading about here that wrote the book of Revelation by the inspiration of God, I don't believe the temple does exist. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, I think it did exist. It doesn't exist. It, that's the argument, too, is when is the book of Revelation written? Before the temple's destruction or after the temple's destruction? And that whole argument primarily is there to determine whether or not there's a preterist view that's accepted or not. That's a huge part of that argument. Even in Matthew, we see on the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew chapter 24, the temple is mentioned. I had not heard that term in my life. Which one? Olivet Discourse. Oh, really? Oh, really? <laughs> Interesting. Luke is going to support Jerusalem being the center of this great destruction. So we see it in Matthew, we see it in Luke. Uh, it's, it's all over that the temple seems to need to be there. So all of this and more was to take place in one generation's time. Jesus said, Upon this generation will come all these things. Now, we already discussed this in reference to Matthew 24. However, there's a new question that arises now, is that is, could the one generation prophecy also be a dual fulfillment? We talked about the one generation being, all of these come upon this generation that sees these things. They look at it as all of these things are going to come upon you that I'm speaking to right now. So, you have those things. Could it be both are right? Both are true. That we're going to, I'm going to give you a foreshadowing, Jesus is saying to those disciples at that time, a foreshadowing of what end times is going to be like. It's going to come upon you. But that's just a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to this generation of this end time. I think it's quite possible. In Revelation 18, verse 11, which we'll get to here eventually, we see the, the merchants are going to mourn for Babylon when it is destroyed, when they see its destruction, the great city. And whether that is Jerusalem or not, uh, some think that it could be. We know that when Jerusalem fell, many merchants mourned because Jerusalem was indeed a strong center of financial... Um, it was a financial center, basically, of economic force at that time. You look at all the selling of the temple sacrifices and the offerings and all of that. 
I think it is going to clearly point to a dual prophecy. Because while we can find some similarities, there are things that are missing. Okay? Where is the trouble that came upon them that is worse then than ever had been in the world or ever will be again? I'm going to read for you some of the things that Josephus describes, and you're going to see awful things, but I don't think it even compares to the Holocaust. There are many things. Who are the two witnesses? Okay, there's no really good explanation for the two witnesses. And many, many other things like that. What you're going to see is a preterist view is going to focus very pinpointed on just a few things here in 70 AD. And a lot of the things are going to just be similar, but not a fulfillment. Anyway, in the Jewish war, this is what he records. Now, this is not... 70 AD, you'll understand that in a moment, but look what he says. The Romans, though it was a terrible struggle to collect the timber, raised their platforms in 21 days, having as described, maybe this is here, I'm sorry, having as described before, stripped the whole area in a circle round a town to a distance of 10 miles. The countryside, like the city, was a pitiful sight. For where once there had been a lovely vista of woods and parks, there was nothing but desert, and stumps of trees. He goes on and he says, No one, not even a foreigner, who had seen the old Judea and the glorious suburbs of the city, and now set their eyes on her present desolation, could have helped sighing and groaning at so terrible a change. For every trace of beauty had been blotted out by war, and nobody who had known it in the past and came upon it suddenly would have recognized the place. When he was already there, he would still have been looking for the city. That tells you the complete destruction that went on there. Ryan, can you, go back just one? you bet, right there. And so that is in reference to what happens here in 70 AD. He also is going to talk here in another one in regards to Antiochus Epiphanes in 164 BC. He wasn't there, but this is what he records. Indeed, it so came to pass that our nation suffered these things under Antiochus Epiphanes according to Daniel's vision. And what he wrote many years before they came to pass, in the very same manner Daniel also wrote concerning the Roman government, and that our country should be made desolate by them. So even Josephus is seeing, wait a minute, we understood that Daniel, back in chapter 7, was talking about a desolation coming upon our country, and we know that Antiochus Epiphanes, in part, fulfilled that. And so did the Romans in 70 AD. So he sees this as a fulfillment, or a foreshadowing anyway, from the book of Daniel. Remember I've said many times that in a Jewish understanding, it's not a one and done, that there are many prophecies foreshadowing, building up to a final fulfillment of that prophecy. 
I think that we have fallen short in our understanding of the book of Daniel. When we read the book of Daniel, we're constantly reading about the four kingdoms. Absolutely true. We see his dream, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue. You see the, the animals. And we see history fitting it to a T. We first see the Babylonian kingdom, the gold head. And then we see that the Medes and Persians come about. And that's the chest with the two arms. And then we see the Greeks coming about. Okay, And that was the, the thighs. And then you see the Romans with the feet coming about. Those four kingdoms. It fits so nicely. But Daniel is clear to state at least twice, these are the things concerning the end. The end times. We see that there's a mountain cut out of a hill that comes down, crushes the kingdoms you know, to pieces, and then his kingdom reigns forever and ever. That hasn't been completely filled, fulfilled yet. So I think that we have very narrow goggles on when we read Daniel and we think it's all done because it's, you know, those four kingdoms. When in fact, those four kingdoms are only a picture, a foreshadow of things concerning the end, end times. I think it is the same here with Antiochus Epiphanes, with the Romans in 70 A.D. We know that the Romans are going to come back again, I think it's 132 A.D., in what is called the Barcopa Rebellion. And it was actually a greater destruction than 70 A.D., some say. How bad was 70 A.D.? Well, let's look on a little more. Josephus says, now the number of those that were carried captive during this whole war was collected to be 97,000. And, or as was the number of those that perished during the whole siege, 1,100,000. So 97,000 taken as captives and slaves, 1.1 million dead. Pales in comparison to the Holocaust, but nonetheless, an amazing tragedy. Why one point, there wasn't even a 1.1 million people in Jerusalem. Well, there was at this time in 70 AD. Why? Josephus goes on, the greater part of whom were indeed of the same nation with the citizens of Jerusalem, but not belonging to the city itself. For they were come up from all the country to the feast of unleavened bread and were on a sudden shut up by an army. The reason so many people were there is the Romans intentionally decided to come and conquer during a festival when they knew that people from all all the Jews are going to be there to celebrate this festival. So, if you recall Jesus' words when he said, So, when you see Jerusalem surrounded, do not go back to take a cloak, but go to the hills, right? Go to Judea. Well, it's fascinating, and one of the things that I'm going to talk about when we go through the Jewish history is, this did not wipe out the Jews like the preterists would like you to think. That's why you can have another terrible destruction in 132 A.D. 
Instead, you're going to see that there was a messianic group of Jews that did take the words of Yeshua, their Messiah, their Mashiach, seriously. And when they saw the Romans coming, they didn't. Now, notice, it's quick. Don't go back to your home. You don't have time to get your coat. There were a number of messianic Jewish people who took that word, the words of Yeshua seriously and hightailed it to Judea and were spared. A remnant was indeed spared. It was not the end of Jerusalem. It was not the end of his covenant to the Jew so that the church could replace them. Not at all. You see, they're only taking these words of Josephus. Look how awful this was. But there's another part of this story of God's faithfulness as well that you have to include in this historical event. He goes on, which at the very first occasion so great a straightness among them that there came a pestilential destruction upon them, and soon afterwards such a famine as destroyed them more suddenly. Now this vast multitude is indeed collected out of a remote place, remote places, but the entire nation was now shut up by fate as in a prison, and the Roman army encompassed the city when it was crowded with inhabitants. Here's the part that I find interesting. As we've been going through the book of Revelation, I want you to notice the order of events here. Historically, what happened? You got an Antichrist coming. A picture of an Antichrist coming. Remember, Antiochus was one. Now you got Titus being a picture of one. Prior to that, we had Pharaoh being a picture of an Antichrist. Remember the first seal? The white horse? An Antichrist. What's the second thing that happens? Well, the Antichrist comes. What does he bring? War. Red horse. War. And then what's it say here? There was famine. What's the third horse? The third seal. Famine. And then you have what? Pestilence and death as a result of these things. The fourth horse was black. The very four seals are in perfect order here. And you can see by, oh, 70 AD, this fits. Okay, but what about all the trumpet judgments? What about the vile judgments? What about all, see, you're just very narrow, which seems to me to say this is only a foreshadowing, only a partial fulfillment. And therefore, what happened here is probably what's going to happen in a similar way in end times. That Antichrist, Titus, he was around for a while. Okay, he had been emperor. It wasn't like, boom, there he is. The Antichrist could be alive right now. But things could get quick. Once the Antichrist reveals himself, surrounds the city, you might say, then things can fall apart rather quickly. Is that a picture of what is to come? And so I think when we talk about the preterist view, there is no question we can read, I've read a number of books from this perspective, and you can find some very neat correlations. Very neat correlations. But it's not complete and I think the reason is because of a Jewish understanding of how to interpret prophecy isn't one and done. So that's all I'm going to touch on that at this point because we don't need to study preterism. 
but I want you to see why it's there and why it can't be. And the biggest reason is because it does not get rid of Israel. That would make God unfaithful to his covenant. Yeah. And if, if it's already done, one of the goals as we started out this book was that prophecy and revelation is to keep you on your toes. And it gets you off of your toes if to say that it's already been done. You know, this is as good as it gets. And typically, a lot of the preterist view would be saying this then. We are to usher in the kingdom of God here on earth. And so things are going to get better and better and better. And so, yeah, it's dominionism that we are to take dominion of this earth. And this is honestly where uh, a lot of the views of President Trump have come from. That Trump is the savior that's going to come and the Nasara Gasara take over. That, you know, when he gets over, the white hats are going to kind of get rid of all of these, you know, drain the swamp. They're going to take all the money of these rich people. They're going to distribute it out to all these other, you know, people who are good. Uh, cancel all your, your property taxes and all taxes and everything's going to be good and restored again and things are going to get better. And we're going to kind of start over that way. And that's from a dominionism idea. And I think that they will say the millennial, that's working up to a millennial reign in some cases. Like I said, there's so many variations, but some would say that millennial reign will be after we take dominion. So, again, I just don't see that being the answer. No. Yeah. It's a new new. T I'm kind of switching gears now. I want to show you as well just some connections to what we've been reading and studying now in Revelation to, to Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, one of the fall festivals here. And trumpets are very important in Scripture. They were blown here for a number of reasons, as you can see, uh, to bring Moses up on Mount Sinai, to signal war, the Jubilee year, to coronate kings, to regather Israel after they were dispersed, to warn of danger, and to announce the Messiah's coming. These are all things that the Bible says are supposed to happen with trumpets blowing. Now, in Revelation 16 that we just finished, in verse 15 it talked about, Behold, I am coming like a thief, or as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest, his, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. It's kind of interesting how, from a Jewish perspective, how this would have been understood. Um, I'll get to that here in a second, but without understanding the Feast of Trumpets, you don't get, I think, a full understanding from a Jewish perspective of what this means here in Revelation, that he's coming like a thief. It is very appropriate for him to be coming as a thief at the time of the seventh trumpet when we read in Revelation chapter 11 when the seventh, seventh trumpet blows. 
And as I've said many times, what do we see? It says, at the sound of the seventh trumpet, the kingdom of this world has now become the kingdom of our God, and the time to reward his saints has come. Sounds to me like at that time, there is a revealing of the Messiah in some way. At least the way I'm understanding things. Traditionally, the Feast of Trumpets, uh, that God created the world at that time. It would be very fitting to end at the same time. A beginning and an end. We see also scripturally in Ezra chapter 3 that it was at this time they come back from Babylon. Ezra begins to reinstitute the sacrifices and the offerings in the temple. He restores worship and kind of being brought back to slavery to the promised land. And now we're going to do it right at this time of the Feast of Trumpets. We see in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 2, at the Feast of Trumpets, he gathers the people together, he sits them down, and from Mount Zion, the law is read, and he gives an understanding or an explanation of the law of God to the people who really had kind of fallen out of touch with it. It is at the Feast of Trumpets, it seems that we see all these scripture verses, the Lord is going to come to Mount Zion, sit us down, and teach the law, as scripture says, the law will go out from Zion, and is going to give us an understanding of the law when we have, uh, our understanding of it has gone away. We also see that if you do a search for the seventh month, which the seventh month is when the Feast of Trumpets takes place, just, you know, do a concordance search of that, it pops up everywhere. Major significant events throughout all of history have happened on the seventh month. Even in our modern day, I suspect most troubles that we see happen in the fall around the Feast of Trumpets, which is interesting. You've got people like Jamie Walden and others thinking that this fall is going to be World War III. Who knows? But trumpets, as far as what it's celebrated, how it's celebrated, how it's understood by the Jews, and we talk about this when we celebrate it, but there are three books opened at this time. The book of righteousness, the book of the holy wicked, and a book of intermediates. And the book of the intermediates have 10 days to repent. If you recall that there is... 30 days prior to the Feast of Trumpets that is called the time of Teshuva, time of repentance. Then you have 10 days from Trumpets to the Day of Atonement. And then you have five days from Atonement to the Feast of Sukkot. So, 40 days all together, all in all, between the 30 and the 10, between... Um, Repentance and atonement. But I want you to just try and make sure you get this. If nothing else, write this down because it's going to be vital to understand that because I want you to see this pattern or this picture of what we've studied so far in Revelation. Okay? So 
your repentance, but ultimately remember there is 10 days from the Feast of um, Trumpets, Trumpets to Atonement, 10 days, and then five more days to Sukkot. Sukkot, you're living with God. It's gathering, He's sheltering, you're, you're, you're hooped, you might say. All right? So, that is going to be important because this time of repentance that they see, the 30 days prior to, and then the 10 days between the first two festivals. If you keep that in mind, once the trumpet blows, which we see in Revelation chapter 11, My question would be, is it possible that this is the time of repentance leading up to the seventh trumpet? Again, I'm not going to be dogmatic on any of this. But you got your first trumpet blowing, and there's trumpets then until the seventh trumpet. A final trumpet, a last trumpet. We're going to talk about that. The Day of Atonement has a number of trumpets blowing. We see in Corinthians and Thessalonians, at the last trumpet, your bodies will be changed. So what's going on in the earlier trumpets? Is this a time of repentance, a time of warning? And we see in the Feast of Trumpets that, that they see this. This is, you, this is your one time, guys. You've got to get ready. This is your last chance to repent before Day of Atonement, Judgment Day. So... Are the trumpets of Revelation possibly a foreshadowing, a picture of this last call? We see, I think it's in the book of Amos where he says, the trumpets are sounding, but no one is alarmed. We'll talk about that here coming up as well. So I don't know. Again, I'm just saying, is this a possibility? Then the ten days between trumpets and atonement... Um, and, and actually, I'm going to back this up. Maybe even the 30 days before could be the seal judgments. Then you have the five days between trumpets, or 10 days between trumpets and um, atonement. So could the seal judgments be this 30-day prior repentance, 10 days of repentance now during the trumpets until the last one, and then you have the vile judgments that take place after the Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement, once you get there, now you're judged, and now God's judgment is being poured out on the world. I don't know if that's making any sense or not, but after the vile judgments, then you're going to see Sukkot. Sukkot, you're living with God, you're protected by Him. What do we see in Revelation 19? We see we're protected. We're in Jerusalem. We're in Zion. We're with God. And the nations are coming up against us. And God is going to go out and destroy them. But we're protected. We're succoting with God. So that the pattern seems to kind of be here in Revelation when you look at it as a whole. Again, I don't know. It's interesting, though. 
Daniel 7 talked about this Antichrist thinking to change times and laws. What does that mean? Well, that word there to change times and laws, in the Hebrew, it's, it's a word, it's zimnim, which is like an appointed time. It comes from the same form as the words for the festivals. And it literally means an appointed time or an occasion. Not that Satan is trying to change daylight savings time, but that there's an appointed time. He's trying to change when the Lord would come back. He's trying to change these certain days that God has set apart. Perhaps even the festivals. But also, and the laws. Satan wants to, I don't think he's talking about, you know, whether we can go 55 or 65. The laws he's talking about are godly laws. And the Antichrist is supposed to do this. What, what could that be if it, you know, if the law is gone? Maybe that's part of Satan's plan to make you think the law is gone. We read here in Leviticus 23, verse 23, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, that is the first of Tishri, that is the Feast of Trumpets, you shall have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. So, here in Leviticus we see, he's telling you, this is when you blow the trumpets. But what is it a memorial of? That word for memorial here in Hebrew means to be mindful of. What are you supposed to be mindful of when the trumpet is blowing? Well, you're supposed to be mindful of God himself. Some say you're supposed to be mindful of creation because tradition has that God created at this time. But I almost wonder if you're not also supposed to be mindful of his second coming. Let's look at this memorial, this time of remembering. Luke 13, 27, he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from, away from me, you evil doers. Just keep that in mind that when God comes back, there are going to be people who say, I, I did this, I did that. Well, I don't know who you are. I don't know. Your name isn't written in the book of life. You're an evildoer, a holy wicked. Numbers 10.9, when you go into battle in your own land against an enemy who is oppressing you, sound a blast on the trumpets. Then you will be remembered by the Lord your God and rescued from your enemies. It's interesting that the trumpet blows of Revelation. Why do you think that the trumpet's blowing? Is it in part so that we remember God, but also that you will be remembered by the Lord your God and protected by him? Because that's part of the blowing of the trumpets when you go to war. Yet we seem to see in the trumpet judgments as well a protection of God's people in Revelation. 
It says this in Malachi 3, 16 and 18. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. A scroll of remembrance. Isn't it interesting that at the Feast of Trumpets, there are books that are opened. Scrolls, you might say, that are opened. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. A distinction is made between the godly and the ungodly. At the Feast of Trumpets, what do we see? A distinction made. Three books. The wicked, the righteous, and the intermediates. In the intermediates, we're not talking about purgatory. These are the ones that have time to repent. They're the ones that it's like, hey, now's the time. The wicked, they don't care at all. Numbers 29.1, on the first day of the seventh month, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. It is a day for you to sound the trumpets. So again, just this is the time of sounding of trumpets. Not only for us to remember him, but for him to remember us. So I think it's important that we recognize this sound. And when we're dealing with these trumpets, that we understand that there may be more to this than, oh, a trumpet's blowing. But there's a purpose for it. 1 Corinthians 14.8, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? If you don't recognize the sound of the trumpet, how are you going to get ready for battle? If you can't recognize the warning, are you going to change? Are you going to repent? You know, when I was in the military on the ship, you, know, you had to learn the different whistles that were blown on the PA system so you knew which, what was to proceed after that. So it's exactly. You know, yeah, you need to know the sound. The psalmist says in Psalm 47, verse 5, God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amid the sound of trumpets, the sounding of trumpets. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Zechariah 9, 14, the Lord will appear over them, his arrow will flash like lightning, the sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. We're seeing oftentimes with these trumpets and over and over, and I don't even have all of them here, that when the Lord comes, there's trumpets. When he's coming to make war, there are trumpets. It is a time of warning. All hell is about to break loose. And that's why you need to recognize the trumpet. It is a time to prepare to repent which is why I find it interesting that 30 days of teshuva, repentance, prior to the first trumpet blowing. And these seals are a call, repent. Can't you see what's going on? And then the trumpets, they start blowing and you still have those 10 days of like, get ready, be prepared, because after the trumpets comes judgment. And the seventh trumpet, boom. The kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of God. And now, what we just read in chapter 16, that's why I say 
there's no time for repentance anymore. We're done with repentance when you get done with the trumpets. The vile judgments aren't for you. That is, and yes, you will not be under the judgment of God there. No question about it. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, to ruah, to shout. I think we need to be rehearsing. We need to familiarize ourselves with the sound of the trumpet. Zephaniah 1.14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry of the day of the Lord will be bitter. The shouting, that's teruah, of the warrior there. Or Jeremiah 30, verse 6 and 7, Can a man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man with his hand on his stomach like a woman in labor? Every face turned deathly pale. How awful that day will be. None will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. This time of Jacob's trouble is often viewed as the seven-year tribulation in much of our eschatology today. I think that this time of Jacob's trouble could be this time of repentance before the, the trumpets even are blowing, or maybe in part during the blowing of them, but certainly the seals and the trumpets. Isaiah 26, as a woman with child is about to give birth, writhes and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, O Lord. Um... We're not weeping, we're not wailing, we're not hearing the trumpet, we're not repenting. I keep hearing a sound of a trumpet over and over in this country. Not literally in my ear, but spiritually in what's going on in the world. And nobody's alarmed, nobody's recognizing it. Instead, it's, oh yeah, the world is evil. All right, where should we go this week? What else can I buy? What other plan can I make? We're not listening. And I think that that is the sound of the trumpet. The purpose of it. Isaiah 13, 6. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this all the hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They'll writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other. Their faces aflame. This is some awful stuff. Daniel 12. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. You see all these connections that seem to kind of keep bringing us back to the Feast of Trumpets? Your name. Okay, this is going to be terrible. Worse than it ever has been. I mean, imagine that. Faces aflame. I mean, revelation proportion of judgments taking place. But, at that time, your people everywhere whose name is found written in the book. Now, I believe that is the book of life, but I think that's one of the books that is opened on the Feast of Trumpets. These three books, the Holy Righteous, 
If your name is found in the book of the holy righteous, or you might say the book of life, then look, you will be delivered. But every time we see this, these evil judgments, I think this is attaching it to what we've been reading here in Revelation. And all of these references to books and times and a calling of repentance is what the goal of these judgments have been up until the, the seals. We read Revelation as if this is all, what a terrible God, that's awful, I don't want to read that. This is God's final cry. This is his, his love for you. You know, when your children are doing something bad and, and you're spanking them, it's not because you're evil, it's because you're try, you love them and you, you want them to turn from their wickedness. That's right. Just even the ability to repent is mercy. But that day will run out. And if 70 AD or Jesus' words mean anything, you may not have time. If you're not right now, when the Romans came, you don't have time to go get your cloak. When things start falling apart in the world today, you aren't going to have time to go get your cloak. You're not going to have time to go get oil in your lamp. Now is the time to get ready. Um, we have here in Matthew 24, Jesus, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. The beginning of warnings. The seals. We showed you Matthew 24 fit the seals perfectly, to a T. If you go back and look at that. And then the trumpet judgments, the final 10 days. This is your last warning. Amos 5.20, will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? That doesn't mean that we should be saying, oh man, we don't want the end of the world to come. No, he's talking about you people who are maybe intermediates or wicked, and you keep, you, you, you keep thinking, oh, the Lord's coming back, but I'm going to live my life right now. Don't think that day is going to be good for you. That's going to be pitch darkness for you. Ezra, when he celebrated this, I mentioned that that was at the Feast of Trumpets that he's restoring worship. They did this for two days. They celebrated uh, it for two days. Why? Well, it, because it fell on a new moon, and they wanted everyone to know when it was. So there were still people back in Babylon a long ways away, and in case they couldn't see it, they wanted to basically have two days so it covered the people that were still captive as well as the people back in Jerusalem. And so it became, became a, a tradition then based on Ezra to celebrate this feast for two days. Now, I don't know if the two witnesses will tie into this or not in Revelation 11, which happens to be around the time of the trumpets. But there had to be two witnesses to the moon before it could be pronounced the trumpet, the day of the Feast of Trumpets. It also, because of this, was always on a day that was unknown. You never quite knew when the Feast of Trumpets was going to be. You had to have those two witnesses make the pronouncement and when those two witnesses did, then you knew. 
I've always said when you see the two witnesses, I think you're going to know they're in Revelation. But the point being is, it was a time where you did not know the day or the hour. And it's kind of fascinating how it would work here. I'll talk about that in a minute. But Jesus says, nobody knows the day or the hour. Any Jew, and when Yeshua is saying this, nobody knows the day or the hour, a Jewish mind would have gone to the Feast of Trumpets. We read this and we automatically go to end times, the Lord's return. A Jew, Feast of Trumpets. Therefore, Feast of Trumpets, end time, same thing. We seem to be talking about a fall festival here. Going back to them coming, becoming uh, Jesus, coming like a thief. In a Jewish mind, here's what they would have understood. They would have been very well acquainted with this idea of coming like a thief. Because if you were a priest in the temple, your job was to stay awake and you had to keep the fires going all night long and whatnot. You were not, there was not a chair to sit down on in the tabernacle or the temple. And so, as the story goes from what I've read, is that if a priest would ever fall asleep, another priest would go take coals from the altar and put it in his lap. And that would start his clothes. It would get hot, obviously, and maybe start his clothes on fire. He'd rip off his clothes and he'd go running off naked. Which kind of puts a little perspective here that he's coming like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he does not go naked. The message being, you always need to be ready. Don't fall asleep. You keep taking care of the temple and the work of the temple. You keep watch. So, in Revelation 3, it said, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. There's still something there. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. If you fall asleep, I'm coming like a thief, and you're going to run off naked. We know the parable of the ten virgins here as well. I'm not going to read all of it, but a couple of things that I find interesting on this. Number one, it's at the eleventh hour. We see another parable of a worker going out and hiring, and at the eleventh hour, nobody is hired. The very fact that we see that the 11th hour is there means that there's a 12th hour. And there's a time period between the 11th and the 12th, something's going on, but nobody else is being hired anymore, if that makes sense. These 10 virgins, five are prepared, five are not. The Lord's coming back, five go with him, but the other five, you know, they can't. They don't have oil in their lamps. What I find fascinating is that it talks about the door was shut. This is another thing that keeps taking me back to Revelation, the door being shut. 
Do you remember what happened at the end of the seventh trumpet? We then go to chapter 16, and we get a scene in heaven. The temple is there, and the temple is filled with smoke because of the presence of, the God, of God. Seven angels go out with the seven vials of God to pour out judgment on the earth, and no one can enter. It's like it's shut. When? When the judgment begins... Nobody gets to go to heaven yet, but there's a time period where nobody's getting in and only judgment is being poured out. No time for repentance. And I see that picture here with the ten virgins, with it being shut. Okay, it continues on here uh, in Luke 12, where it says, It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve. Um, he will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time or hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master's taking a long time and coming. And he then begins to beat the men servants and maid servants to eat and drink and get drunk and to watch TV and to plan vacations and build and spend money and build up a bank account. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. These are all warnings. These are trumpet calls. When evening comes, you say it'll be fair weather. Okay, Today it's going to be stormy and so on. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. Matthew 16, 3. Or the days will come upon you and your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Again, you can see how this would be, oh, 70 AD, that's what happened. But that was only a picture. God's coming. How did God come any more in 70 AD than he did in 30 AD? So all of these things were to be found watching so that the darkness spoken of at Yom Teruah does not overtake us, as we saw in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. Um, watching indicates that there's going to be signs and warnings. If there aren't going to be signs and warnings, why did he tell you to watch? Watch for nothing. Well, guys... I'm seeing some signs. I'm seeing some trouble ahead. As Proverbs says, a wise man sees trouble and takes refuge, but the foolish keep going and suffer for it. So every time the Feast of Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, is celebrated, it's a warning of the Lord's return. That is why it's a time of repentance and preparation for the feasts yet to come. Ezekiel wrote, When I bring the sword against the land and the people of the land, choose one of their men and make them their watchman. And, and I'm just to save some time, it's the watchman story you know here that 
if you go and warn them and they don't repent, then the blood be on their head. If you don't go and warn them, though, then the blood be on your head that you didn't warn them. That's one of the things we're supposed to be doing in getting ready. I think that's part of these days of teshuva, you might say. The seal judgments is like, whoa, it's, it, okay, we, we shouldn't need that. We should be doing it long before then. But especially the seal judgments are times for you to say, oh, this is real. This is serious. We need to be warning people. We read here in Jeremiah 6, verse 10 and following, To whom can I speak and give warning? Who will listen to me? Their ears are closed so they cannot hear. The word of the Lord is an offense to them. They find no pleasure in it. Does that sound familiar? Sound kind of like our day today too? But I am full of the wrath of the Lord and I cannot hold it in. Okay, the people didn't care about God's word, so what was Jeremiah bringing? The wrath. Today we only want to bring the love of God to people. That's our warning. Oh, come on. Jesus loves you. Doesn't that make you want to stop doing drugs? <laughs> Jeremiah brought on the wrath. Prophets and priests all alike practiced deceit. They dressed the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Hmm. That's how we treat sin today, as if it's not serious. No wonder there's no repentance. They do not even know how to blush. I appointed watchmen over you and said, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But you said, we will not listen. Again, Yom Teruah. It keeps coming back. I, I, I'm hoping, as I was putting this together, I'm hoping you're seeing the big picture in all of these verses throughout Scripture and bringing it all to the book of Revelation and the trumpets and their purpose and their goal. And the trumpets are sounding and no one's alarmed. Isaiah 58, raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. It is believed by Jews and supported, I think, scripturally, that the day of Yom Teruah, the day of trumpets, is a day of awakening the dead. Consider some of these verses here as we're getting close. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. The question is, when is this going to happen? Or Isaiah 26, 19, But your dead will live, their bodies will rise, the earth will give birth to her dead. Isaiah 26, 19. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. But that's exactly what we see in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. In the New Testament as well, backing it up. So, when these priests were looking for this sliver of the moon to announce the Feast of Trumpets beginning, they would go up to that southern parapet, basically the rooster crow, blow the trumpet, and there would be people out working in their fields, and if they would do that, they would drop, stop, and they would go right back to their home and immediately get ready to start celebrating the Feast of Trumpets. Like I said, they didn't know when. They didn't know when it was going to happen. And 
these trumpets that were then blown throughout this festival, in their minds, were to announce the setting up of an eternal court. Well, that's kind of interesting because before it officially begins, you've got a court being seated, an eternal court. What did we see before the trumpets began blowing? A courtroom being seated there in Revelation. Everything we've been reading in the Re in book of Revelation has led up to this time of the fall festivals of trumpets and then Day of Atonement, Judgment, which is what we just read in the, the bold judgments. And then after that comes Sukkot. That's going to be Revelation 19, 20, 21, 22. Those are the good days. But I, I hope you're seeing this. Um, the final trumpet announced the courtroom being seated. According to Jewish tradition, the first court date was for those who had their names written in the book of life. That's the first one. Well, what did we see at the seventh trumpet? We're gathered, it seems, to Jerusalem. And then judgment takes place with the vials. So the first court, the first judgment, is for the righteous. I'm taking you first. You might even say the parable where the wheat was gathered first. And then the rest to go burned. The dead in Christ will rise first, it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. So in Judaism, it's believed that the Lord looks over a person's account in the 10 days between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. You're, you're being weighed on a balance, you might say, at that time. That 10-day period, though, is the time that they're supposed to be repenting. But once those 10 days are over, the books are closed and the temple, the doors are shut to the temple. Interesting. During that 10 days, the Feast of Trumpets, during the Trumpets of Revelation, there's no mention of not being able to enter the temple. There's still, it seems, to be time to repent. But then the seals, that door was shut in a sense. Nobody can enter the temple, or not seals, but vials. And then judgment begins. It's too late. Doors are shut. Same thing they see with these fall festivals, a short period of all three festivals seems to be lining up nicely. Second Corinthians 5.10 We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Again, the ten days are over. Now it's time. The doors are shut. Judgment day. You're either good or you're bad. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 through 15 also talks about this. The judgment of the godly here only that, well, not I shouldn't say only. Uh, if what you built survives, you're rewarded. If what you built doesn't survive, you still are saved. But because you built on the foundation of Jesus. So rewards of heaven. We've talked about that before. Uh, I don't think that that's going to happen until we see the actual judgment day of Revelation 20. But for now, just kind of keep that in mind. Daniel 7, verses 10 and 11, we talked about the court was seated, books were opened again. 
All right. And this is all talking, kind of we made reference to this and the beginning of the book of Revelation there just before the seal judgments took place. Revelation 5, we see a similar thing. I'm not going to read all of that. It's a clear courtroom scene, though. The very same thing we saw in Daniel. The very same theme of the fall festivals and the Feast of Trumpets. A courtroom. Books being opened. Judgment about to take place. And so, Revelation 20 is where we're going to see the Day of Atonement. Right now... We're in trumpets, and atonement, the beginning of it, is all the judgment of the vile judgments being poured out on earth. But that's the evil being punished. The good being rewarded as well, and then being cast into hell for the evil, you won't see that until chapter 20. Um, the hoopah. In chapter 20, and I think even prior to that now, I think we've seen us being gathered to Jerusalem, to Zion, in some sort of protection. God is going to be a protection over us. We read in Zephaniah 2, 1 through 3, Gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives, and that day sweeps on like chaff before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be spared on the day of the Lord's anger. Take advantage of the time to repent. Humble yourself. Get ready because the day of the Lord's anger is coming. Psalm 27, 5, For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle. That hoopah. Isaiah 26, Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. It seems to be that while God is punishing with the vile judgments, we're protected. It does. And I think there's similarities between the spring and, but again, just like it's first coming, second coming. So The coronation... I've got two slides here and we're done. Um, the trumpets in, the, uh, in Psalm 98, it says, With trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord the King. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. So it's the blast of the ram's horn. We sing the Lord coming to judge. Revelation 4, the same kind of thing. Um, a door is opened in heaven like we see on the Feast of Trumpets, that sort of thing. Um, it is not an accident that the regular practice of Israel and all the kings was to anoint and coronate kings on the first of Tishri, the beginning of the Feast of Trumpets. It makes sense then that our king will be come to take his kingdom at the Feast of Trumpets and he will be coronated. And that is why, if you go and read Psalm 47, we're not going to do that tonight, but Psalm 47 is called the Coronation Psalm. And you're going to see that the king basically chooses his inheritance in verse 4. He goes up with a shout and a sound of a trumpet in verse 5. 
He's going to be praised and seated on a throne in verses 6 through 8. He then gathers his people in verse 9. And these are all things that are expected to take place on the great festival of Yom Teruah. These are all things that seem to fit the gathering of the people, seating, you know, coronating, all of it. Go read Psalm 47, but picture this order of revelation that you've seen so far. Matthew 4.17, in closing out, Jesus celebrated Yom Teruah when he walked this earth. And it was around this time, they say, that he was baptized and then went and spent 40 days in the wilderness. It was at this time that he was pronouncing repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The time of trumpets that he was saying that. And so I'll leave you with that to meditate upon this week that I still believe it is a possibility we are in that the seals have been broken. I don't know. It could be another foreshadowing just like Antiochus, just like Titus. But the white horse is a revealing of the Antichrist. If he's out there, we, if you might remember the COVID message I gave here a couple of years ago, three years ago or so, that COVID seems to fit a white horse perfectly. Absolute perfect perfection. The next thing then, and it would get faster and faster, is we're about ready for World War III, the red horse. After World War III comes famine and death. This is a time that we should be in teshuva, preparing for the Lord's come, preparing for the trumpets to blow because if you can't tell the signs of the time, if you, you can tell your fruit trees, but you can't tell the time of the Lord, maybe your eyes aren't on the Lord and your eyes are on the things of this world. So meditate on that this week. We'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word maybe a little heavier message and just a good reminder for us to search our hearts here this week, Lord, to see what we need to repent of, to be ready. I just pray that you help us to understand this book of Revelation as much as possible, uh, you know, before it comes. Just give us insight. Let us not be so dogmatic about anything that when things begin to unravel that we can't see it like, like so many Jews did when they had so many expectations of who you were supposed to be in their eyes and it wasn't what they had in mind. Lord, we want to be open to your spirit and understanding, but let your word be what speaks to us, not our own imaginations, not our own desires, not politics, not even the events of this world. But let us be watching to make those connections and in either case, take this time to repent because for us, the time is short. Every man's life is but a breath. Let us breathe wisely. In Jesus' name, amen.